Okay, it says it's recording. Let's see what happens. So, and then we will hide it away. Or Zen to have a Android phone there, huh? So, hello everybody. Thank you for inviting me back. So I guess it wasn't too Thank bad, huh? <laughs> um, so, uh, I hope I understood the topic right this week. So, you were talking about the Noble Eightfold Path or the ennobling eightfold path as it's sometimes translated. I love looking at different translations because you know it really brings a lot of uh, insight uh, sometimes into what you're doing. English is a very noun heavy language. So a lot changes in translation from, I hope there's a linguist in here who can correct me. Um, English has like what, three declensions of verbs and uh, Polly has like seven or eight. So we lost a lot in the translation from a verb-heavy language to a noun-heavy language. So think of it as the ennobling eightfold path that it ennobles us. The Buddha talked about a noble one as one who does this and that. And then um, when it talks about right action, right livelihood, and that kind of thing, um, you can also think of that in, ter in terms of a verb of, of writing something that has tipped over, you know, writing a, a, a listing vessel or something like that. Um, so this week it was the third section. It's, there's eight parts, but it's in three sections, right? Time for pop quiz. Do you might remember? We'll do it the easy part first. Three sections? No? Okay. The first one deals with right view and right intention, right? Right view meaning that, okay, you see that um, you think you, you're in agreement with the first couple tenets of the, the Four Noble Truths. And right intention says, okay, since I, I see some validity to that, I want to follow the path. And then the next section is dealing with your actions, right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And that's what you spoke about last week. And then the third section that we're going to talk about this week, week is right samadhi. Do I know that word, samadhi? Concentration, mental effort. Okay. And again, please um, feel free to interrupt at any time with questions. Um, sometimes I talk too fast if I'm using a term you're not familiar with. It's okay to interrupt. Um, so, um, and I, and I, this is for your, um, my notes are for your protection also to keep me from going on ta tangents. <laughs> I love tangents. That's not necessarily a good thing. So, um, and again to translation, so let's talk about, th this, was, this was three portions, and this one is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration in that category of samadhi. Right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And I think they kind of go in a sequence. Okay, uh, but the big one's the mindfulness. That's what you hear a lot, you know, reading the books and, 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 and going to Dharma talks and downloading them from the internet and stuff like that, right? You hear a lot of mindfulness? Okay, so let's talk about what that is. Um, that if you go back to the Pali, again, the translation was remembering, remembering well. But again, maybe he was limited in his words he had available and he wasn't really happy with that word. <laughs> so you look at the context and all that, and some other translations are awareness, some others are attention, and uh, there's the mindfulness. Those are the four big ones you usually see. Um, 
and everybody has their preferences. I, you know, mindfulness, I think, is a little bit lame. Has anybody been to London, been to the UK, been on the tube? And what is the announcement always saying? Mind the gap. Because there's a gap between the platform and the train. They don't want anybody falling through. They, you can, tourists can get t-shirts, you can get hats, you know, mind the gap. And, and that's what I think of a mindfulness a lot of times. It's kind of a, yeah, you know, kind of, kind of watch out and keep it in the back of your mind, but don't really focus on it very much. A very passive thing. I like the translation of attention because it's intentional, it's an effort, and we'll see why in a couple minutes. Um, so, in terms of, that's, you know, those are the translations, what, what it means. But what is it? What is mindfulness? So let's look at that in a couple of ways. Um, and we all kind of have a feeling for it. Um, let me read, well, let me. we did mindful walking, right, a couple of weeks ago. We did mindful sitting. You can be mindful doing anything, but it's raising the question, what are you mindful of? Any thoughts? Surrounding. Surroundings. I think it can change from situation to situation. Situational? Anybody else? Well, it could be like internal things like being mindful of your own emotions or thoughts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've kind of covered the gamut, gamut from external, your environment, to internal, to... You know, it changes depending on what's going on. So that pretty much covers everything. Um, and I want to, to give you some guidance here. It's not so much to focus on the external. And again, there's no right or wrong answer, so I'm not picking on anybody here. Um, it's more internal. And even when you're, if, if you think about this, when you're looking at external, what are you doing? It's, it's your perception. It's your response to it, your emotional response. Oh, you know, it's it's nice out today. I like that. Or it's raining. You know, it's been raining for three days, and I'm tired of it, or whatever. You know, we usually take external, and then we process it. So the process of mindfulness is not so much minding the gap, uh, as on the tube, although that's important, um, but being mindful of what's going on inside. And that's why we do it in sitting meditation, to kind of remove all that other distraction, because we've got plenty to work on just sitting here. Um, and to continue a little bit more about what it is not, I want to say again, it's not lackadaisical. And um, because in the early days of when Zen first came to America, there was a lot of what I called hippie Zen where people would use it as an excuse, oh, you know, I'm, I'm like this, but I'm aware of it, I'm mindful of it, or, you know, I know what's going on, and I know I can be a cantankerous jerk, but I'm aware of it, so that's okay, you know. No, <laughs> you know, there's a reason to be mindful, not just to kind of give you the excuse that it's Zen, if I'm mindful, it's okay. That's like a day's goal. And it's not thinking about thinking, okay? Um, 
gee, it's been raining for three days. I'm tired of it. Why am I tired of it? Why is that bothering me? Well, because I can't go out and do this that I want to do. And you know, you start going through that endless uh, gerbil wheel, you know, just running and running and running. Um, that's not what mindfulness is intended to be. And it's not simply labeling, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more, but some of you may have, have read or, or know about, there are some practices to label, okay, I'm, you know, this is a pleasant thought, this is an unpleasant thought, this is a neutral thought, or, you know, whatever. Um, that's one tool, but that's not always to be used, and that's not all of it. So, um, that's talking about what it's not, so then, okay, what is it? Yes, please, because okay. I get tired of listening to myself. Okay. Well, I feel like I'm most mindful when I'm completely aware and accepting of my mortality. Mm -hmm. Like, is that valid? But thoughtlessly, somehow. Like, one time I was laying on my bed with my hand rested against, like, my ears, and then I was hearing my heart beat, and then I was like, one day my heart's going to stop beating, and I became Absolutely, that's part of it. Um, two things. One is, you know, talking about your own physical body and its mortality, and the other one being doing it without reaction or judgment. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later because that was a great segue to something that's that's in one of these uh, books I brought. Um, so. Uh, In terms of, it, oh, to come back to what it is, um, and please remind me not to, to forget that when I, when I pick up there's a red book. <laughs> um, for, you know, you can look at what it is by definition and what it is by effect. For me, by effect, it's kind of, we talked when I was here a couple of weeks ago about faith, the different meanings of faith in different traditions and how in Zen it's, or Buddhism it's more kind of confidence. To me, it translates into my faith and my confidence because the more I practice mindfulness, the more I find that the Four Noble Truths are true and that the practice has an effect for me. Okay, So that's the, the kind of the faith aspect for me is that the more I practice mindfulness, I say, oh, yeah, my attachment really does drive me nuts. you know. And when I am mindful of my speech and my actions, it really does keep me from screwing up quite so much and, and hurting others. Um, so there's that positive feedback loop, and I'll come back to that in a bit. So that's the effect of mindfulness for me. That's what it is in my life. So then the question comes up, well, how do you do it, right? How do you do this mindfulness? Well, there's there's a whole sutra on that. Does anybody, does anybody know the word sutra or sutta? In, I can't keep it straight. There's so many sutta in Pali and sutra in Sanskrit, I think. Um, there's the um, Sita Patana Sutta. Sita is the root word. It, that's the word for uh, the mindfulness, the awareness, the memory that, that we were talking about earlier. That's the word that is translated. Um, and the translation is Sutra on the Four Establishments of Mindfulness. How to the four building blocks, how you create it. This is one of the uh, early, earliest sutras. It's canonical 
in Buddhism, meaning you know there are some there are hundreds and thousands of sutras and some different schools you know say that this one's more important than that one or whatever. But canonical means that you know the core uh, group that pretty much everybody agrees is very very important. Um, and these were the Buddha's teachings on what is mindfulness, and there's four of them. So it splits it up into four categories. But before it go, before we go into that, um, and I'm reading the, you know, out of the book because I just can't remember everything. <laughs> I want to get the wording right. It says, um, the Buddha said, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize nirvana. This way is the four establishments of mindfulness. Okay. That's what he's talking about in the book here. And then at the very end, it summarizes, um, this is what we said that this path, the path of the four grounds for the establishment of mindfulness, is the most wonderful path which helps beings realize purification, transcend grief and sorrow, destroy pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize nirvana. Okay. So um, this was the very, very early sutras. And then in the tradition that I'm most familiar with in the Soto Zen tradition in the 13th century, Master Dogen writes the same kinds of thing in Bendo Wa um, and Fukanza Zengi, and we can talk about those some other time if you want, where he says, this is the transmitted gateway, not A or one, but the gateway um, to liberation. So it's you know, pretty important. Pretty important stuff. And that's what the Buddha did. He, he gave up the path of, of wealth and power. He tried the path of denying the body and asceticism and, and uh, extremes. And neither one of those gave him peace of mind. So he finally kind of dropped both ends of the extremes and just sat. And he said, you know, I'm not going to get up again until <laughs> I have figured it out. And it was the meditation. Now, there had been lots of training. He knew how to meditate. He'd studied all the, the sutras and the, and the, uh, um, the up to his time. And the ethical teachings and things like that. So he had a lot to work with. He had a lot of basis. Um, but it was that meditative state that allowed him to, to uh, uh, transcend dukkha and to achieve liberation. So... And again, I'm using all these terms, and if you have a question about any of them, let me know. So what are the four foundations of mindfulness? Well, there uh, actually, you guys brought up a lot of them. It's mindfulness of the body um, is the first one. I think you brought that up, right? Mindfulness of the body. I don't know who did that. Anyway. Um, like we do when we're sitting. You know, I'm aware of my body. I'm aware that this knee hurts, and I'm aware that the, about 15 minutes into it, this little muscle is going to cramp, and and whatever. I'm aware that my body's calming, and my pulse is slowing, and whatever. And then there's awareness of the feelings, emotional responses to things, like oh, this knee always hurts, and man, I'm tired of that. Why does it have to happen to me? You know, and um, that's when you're getting into your reaction to what you're observing. Then there's the uh, mindfulness of consciousness. And again, the, we're getting kind of more abstract 
you know, the definitions are getting more difficult. Where there you're starting to, you know, it's not just an immediate observation. It's not your immediate response, the emotion. Now it's things like, oh, you know, a kind of a state of your being. I'm tired or I'm, I'm stressed out and anxious because I've been running around like crazy or, you know, I'm uh, really depressed about something. Um, it's kind of a, a more general state of being than an individual emotional response immediately to something. And then the fourth one is what's called mental formations. And again, if you read books in the Theravadan uh, Vipassana tradition, you, probably, you read a lot about mental formations or if in other traditions as well. Um, you'll read about them a lot in certain sutras. So, and these are the really complicated, your, your, kind of, your model of the world, how things work, how they should work, your understandings of, of uh, more complex concepts. So those are the four foundations of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feelings, consciousness, and mental formations. And I would like to point out that they kind of proceed in that level of complexity, both in terms of you know, how you structure the way you, you're observing what's going on and also how you practice with them. So we start off with mindfulness of the body. Just sit down, quiet the body so there's less to be so aware of, you know, um, but be very mindful of our posture and our body and then start being aware of these other things. Now, let me read some of the passages from the sutra. I promise I won't read too much. To see if it starts to sound familiar to some of you. Okay? So, the first part is, and how does one practice, how does a practitioner, rewind, can, can we edit out this part? Of the <laughs> how does a practitioner remain established in the observation of the body in the body. Remember that phrase, the body in the body. And I'm going to come to your point in a, two or three minutes. Um, he goes to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty room, sits down cross-legged in the lotus position, holds his body straight, and establishes mindfulness in front of him. An, an active statement there, establishes it in front of him. He br okay, so let me stop at that part. So that's what, that's what he says to do. Go to somewhere, sit down, meditate, and establish mindfulness. It's an active thing, as we discussed a little bit before. He breathes in, aware that he is breathing in. He breathes out, that he, aware that he is breathing out. Does that line sound familiar to anybody? Has anybody been reading any Thich Nhat Hanh? Yeah, he talks about that a lot. Yeah, well, he, he gets them, those exercises from here. Okay, that's where it comes from, because there's a lot of these in here, you know. Breathing in, I calm myself, or, and, and, wait a minute, is it? Breathing in, I calm myself, breathing out, I smile, and, you know, breathing in a long breath, I'm aware I'm breathing in a long breath, breathing out a short breath, breathing, I'm aware I'm breathing out a short breath. Um, those, there's a lot of those kind of exercises in here. Um, so when you see those kinds of phrases, this is where a lot of them came from. And then he kind of expanded it to apply to other things as well. Um, and that's where it's coming from. So that was a section on awareness of the body. And then there are others like, you know, I'm aware that I'm experiencing anger and then letting it go. Now notice that all this says is 
when he breathes in, he's aware he's breathing in. Doesn't judge it, doesn't control it or anything like that. Just aware of it and let it go and wait for the next one. Swing door, in and out. Um, that's a very simple practice of the body. And then there are more here. And then just for the sake of completeness, I'm going to mention it and because you brought it up and um, not to freak anybody out, but if anybody's been doing a lot of reading, you may have heard that in the early days the monks would go contemplate decomposing bodies. Has anybody heard that? I've heard of that. Tigran actually suggested that one as well. Yes, yes. So, so they walked in just for like the really freakiest part of the whole talk. They might turn around and leave. So. Uh, this is Larry's favorite part. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, just the 30-second summary. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. The we're talking about the last section of the Noble Eightfold Path, where we're dealing with mindfulness and uh, the, the basic sutra, the four establishments, the four establishments of mindfulness. Yep. Um, and talking about what mindfulness is, how do you practice it, and so on. And we were just up to the very first one, which was mind, practicing mindfulness of the body. And we were talking about uh, meditation as, as a foundation for that. But then I was mentioning, because the question had come up earlier, that in, in case you've heard of it or come across it in your readings, it's not some really weird story. In ancient India, and somebody, if there's a historian in here, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way you disposed the bodies in those days was there was a charnel yard and you left them exposed to the open and the animals and vultures and all would do their thing. And so in order to um, really drive home the point that we are going to we are prey to age, old age, sickness, and death. They would go meditate in the charnel yard. And there are, there are very gruesome descriptions in here about meditate on the body at this stage and at that stage and blah, 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 and, re and realize at each stage that this will be you one day. So, um, <laughs> so maybe a little bit more than what you were talking about, but okay. But it's in there. And uh, that actually, you know, I try to practice that when I go to visit sick relatives. You know, I've had grandparents die, and I've tried to be very mindful of that when I'm visiting them. That, you know, that will be me, and that will be natural. And I, I freaked my daughter out one day when I told her that, you know, you know, something came up and it was talking about when I die. And I said, well, that'll be my gift for you. I'll be making room for you. You know, because if we didn't make room, we'd be in a heck of a mess now. So. Um, she didn't get it, but <laughs> she will eventually. So that's the first section on the establishment of mindfulness of the body. And it goes all the way from breathing in, I'm aware that I'm breathing in, to go contemplate corpses. So it's pretty comprehensive. And the other sections are like that as well. You know, dealing with your emotions, dealing with your, your mental states and dealing with your conceptual structures, mental formations. And I won't bore you with reading any more of them because they kind of go on in the same form. But you know, if you read uh, the other, other books from, by Thich Nhat Hanh, you'll see where he's drawing that from, from this. Okay, so let me back up a little bit. First of all, any questions? Yes? 
It is, well, there's a, a subtitle that they brought up to be the big title. Transformation and Healing. A sutra on the Four Establishments of Mindfulness. And then the Pali is Satipatthana Sutta. Okay, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> and this, actually this, oh, go ahead. The Four what of Mindfulness? The Four Establishments of Mindfulness. Okay. I'll post a link on Facebook. Yeah, you want the, I mean, you can get the ISBN and everything. Actually, that translation is by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. So, um, so to back up a little bit, so this this whole book. So if you if you go to a zendo or if you, you practice with a teacher, and more or less depending on certain traditions, but especially in the uh, Theravadan and Vipassana tradition, your teacher will give you various exercises about you know. Well, for right now, just focus on the breath. Okay. Next time, let's. No, go ahead. Um, um, you know, or look at your emotions and label your emotions. It's one of the exercises in there. You know, like I'm experiencing frustration because you know he hasn't rung the bell yet. Or <laughs> you know, um, it, it, there there are all kinds of those exercises in there, and then you know, a teacher will give you those various kinds of exercises in different traditions. But the basis is always starting off with it. Calm the body, calm the mind, just practice awareness of the breath. That's the very first exercise, the very basic exercise. And, uh, you, know, you know, people will ask Thich Nhat Hanh if, uh, in interviews, you know, what is your practice? My practice is watching the breath. You know, always coming back to the beginning and then working forward from there. So that's why, you know, I say there's not some great secret to, to meditation. It's mostly just sit still. Sit down and shut up. Has anybody heard that book? Yeah. Yeah? Brad Warner, yeah, he's a little, he's a little radical, but but very very good. And sit down, and shut up was actually a, a great title, because that's that's what you're supposed to do. Just the first thing, sit down and shut up. I saw him in Durham. Yeah, I I missed. The, I was planning to go to the retreat where he was coming to to our Zendo, and I couldn't make it. So, oh well. But his uh, teacher, Gudo Wolf Nishijima was the translator for the Shobogenzo, for this translation of the Shobogenzo. Wonderful teacher. Um, and Jack Warner, uh, Brad Warner was his student. So to back up, um, so what do we do with this? I look at it as a kind of a toolkit. If you are into sports or into a hobby, um, what do you do? Well, first of all, I, say, I'm, I, I like this, I'm going to do this, or for whatever reason, you make an effort. You schedule time to practice, time to put into it. You have the tools that you need, whether it's sports equipment or tools for your hobby, and you learn how to use those tools, right? If you're playing tennis, um, you, you practice your strokes, your forehand and your backhand and, and your movement across the court and stuff like that. You practice those tools until they become effortless when you play the game. If you're, my father was a woodworker, so I think of woodworking metaphors. You know, you set up your, your space, the workshop, you, you keep it clean, you set up the times that you're going to work there, you learn how to use all your different tools and all that. So when you go to make a piece, 
you're not figuring out, okay, how do I how do I use a lathe again? What speed do I need for this type of wood? Is it, that's all kind of automatic because you've done it so much. You can focus on the creativity of creating the, the piece of woodworking. So it's the same thing here. It's kind of a toolbox. Um, the the first one of the three was uh, right effort. That means saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sit, and I'm going to do it regularly. I'm going to do it for so long or whatever. And this doesn't mean it has to be you know, very, very rigid, but that you're making some kind of an effort. And then the four establishments of mindfulness is kind of your toolbox, the different techniques that you use to establish the mindfulness. And then just like with the sports, once you've got your, your effort and your toolkit together, then you can focus on the game or the creativity. And in this case, what you're focusing on is the samadhi, the deep awareness. It's kind of translated as concentration, but we think of concentration as being focus in our culture, whereas samadhi is really open awareness more so than, than focus. If anything, it's just to focus on you know, coming back to to your awareness of the body and the breath and letting everything go. So that's the way I see it, yes. Are you familiar with the term joriki? Say it again, please. Joriki? No. I think it may be Japanese, but it's used in Zen. It's like a... Jor joriki? Joriki. Okay. Yeah. I've heard it, and I don't remember off the top of my head what it means. Oh. Uh, well, it's, I think it's a word that's supposed to express part of what you're talking about with samadhi, and also, like, intuitive responses. Mm -hmm. It's a group of different things, but... Uh, if you did understand it, I was hoping to understand it a little bit better because it's kind of a difficult concept, but if not, it's okay. Well, I can go back and look into it. I have a hard time keeping up with all these words, and <laughs> especially you know, when sometimes you're studying something that was translated from Pali or Sanskrit or Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese or Korean. I, like, I can't take it. You know, <laughs> That's when I fall back on just, okay, sit down and shut up for a while. Um, so... What then, you know, we, we talked about mindfulness about enough, I think. I'll start repeating myself. So what is its role in the Eightfold Path? And this is where I'm going to say I think the Eightfold Path is a bit of a misnomer. Me, I'm an expert, right? I'm going to change Buddhist teaching. <laughs> but hey, it's all open to your experience, your interpretation. So a path we usually think of as going from point A to point B you have a beginning and you have a destination, right? And in some ways that is true. In some traditions, there is kind of a linear approach to the Eightfold Path. For example, um, a lot of schools, they won't let you really develop a meditation practice until first you work the ethical practice. You know, don't, don't uh, lie, don't cheat, don't steal, all those things. And there's a reason for that. It's really hard to sit down and meditate when you're all wrapped up in some turmoil because you said or did something stupid, you know, and and you know it, you don't have to meditate long before you can really see that that when you've done something, you know, or you know you just agonize or why did I do that, you know, and now my wife's upset with me or you know, whatever, and um, this is for the oh because the rest is coming later. Okay, <laughs> I was wondering why do I get paid for. Um, Oh, thank you. So, um, where was I? Rewind. 
So the, the part that it plays in the Eightfold Path. So in some traditions, it is kind of linear. You've got you've to, just like we calm our body, that's in this effort to calm the mind first. You know, if you're going to be a monastic for a while, you don't even start a meditation practice until you've, you've practiced the ethical precepts for a while first. So in that way, it's linear. But then mindfulness, your meditation practice, you can see much more clearly the other parts of the Eightfold Path. You can see much more clearly how your actions reverberate in the world, how your speech reverberates in the world, the truth of um, suffering and attachment arising from suffering, or, or suffering arising from attachment, and those kinds of things. And it facilitates your practice in, in those uh, areas. And then the more you do that, the more it facilitates your meditation practice. So I see it as a cycle. As a as a circular path, you never get off. <laughs> okay, but it just gets better and better. So um, that's my change for the Buddhist teachings for today. You know, not the eightfold path, the eightfold cycle. <laughs> so um, I think that was about all I had intended to say. Did that make any sense, or do I need to? Try it all over again sometime, or any questions? Or have I just bored you to tears? You'd rather enjoy the brownie. Um, was, what were you talking about before we entered? <laughs> okay. Uh, before you entered, we were just kind of summarizing the the Noble Eightfold Path and and verbs versus nouns in different languages. Think of it also as the ennobling eightfold path. It can, you know, ennoble you. Uh, right action, right speech. Think of right as a verb, you know, to help get you upright and when you're when you're off kilter, things like that. Just play with nouns and verbs a little bit. See what that does. Um, we talked about whether mindfulness is is it ex mindfulness of external things, of internal things. We talked about uh, um, what does that actually mean? Does it mean just kind of, oh, I'm sort of aware or I'm really kind of trying to be open to, to what's going on? That, that kind of stuff. Is that too quick a summary to be meaningful? Okay. So, but I can... Mom's home with Duncan, so mom, mom meaning not my mom, but my wife, his mom. So I can stay and talk as long as you want. <laughs> it's probably not what you want to hear. <laughs> Do you feel that someone can be truly mindful continuously, or does mindful kind of flow in and out of the mindfulness? Flow in and out of a very good question. Um, for for everybody I know, we kind of flow in and out of it. You know, because our whole survival mechanism is that our mind is continually solving problems, scanning the environment, what's going on, how do I make sure I've got food to eat, how do I make sure I've got shelter, how do I make sure I'm protected, and that kind of stuff. And that has served us very, very well, but it's not very good for, for peace sometimes. So our minds will always default back to that mode. With practice, you become, become more and more aware of it um, and so you can let it run without being so wrapped up in it, but you still get sucked in once in a while. But when you go on retreats, meditation retreats and things like that, 
you can see there's a very uh, strong effort to give you opportunities to take that mindfulness from your sitting into increasingly greater activities, to get up and do a little walking meditation, you know, while your body's moving, to be very mindful of that. You take your meals in silence, so you can be mindful of that. When you go to work in the kitchen, you know, if it's your turn to work in the kitchen, you try to do that in silence and be mindful of that. So we try to give ourselves practice to take it farther and farther into our daily lives. And you can with with regular practice at it. Did, did that answer your? Yes. Okay. If I may add to, a little bit to that, I think that's where the idea of Joriki that I mentioned comes in. Because from what I've read um, from increased meditation, from a lot of meditation over time, you um, begin to develop an ability to intuitively respond to your situation. So you don't have to necessarily always reason things out in the conscious part of your brain where you problem solve. Like you said, we, we often we have to do that in order to survive. But sometimes that can be replaced with joy key where you kind of have almost automatic, but it's still mindful, uh, responses to things where you just instantly know the right, the appropriate response for the situation. Like in martial arts, where you just automatically know like the right move to defend yourself from your opponent. But it can also apply to anything in life. Let me get this out. And <laughs> you might develop an intuition for it. Let me. Uh, there's a funny story about uh, about that, but to your point, before I do that, um, that's very you know resonates strongly with when I was trying the sports metaphor, where you practice for certain aspects of your sport over and over and over again so that it's automatic. So you don't have to think about how do I do a, a backhand again, you know, or how do I position myself? It's just reflexive. And it's the same thing like when I was talking about why I see the Eightfold Path as being circular, because your meditation practice makes it easier for you to be aware of, um, be mindful in, in your speech and actions and things like that. So that's absolutely right. I don't know that term so well, but it does, it does a couple of things. I think perhaps more than allowing you to intuit a response, it frees you from the knee-jerk reaction. Um, it's much easier to, and I have to say this very carefully because I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking that Buddhism or Zen turns you into some kind of a Spock-like emotionless uh, person, but it allows you to be much more aware of what's going on, you know, when somebody's pushing your button, you know, you still there's still that, oh, damn it, you know, but but there's that split second where you can see it happening, and you can decide. Hopefully, you know, with practice, you can decide to see your anger or be your anger. There's a big difference, a huge difference. Okay, you're human. You're still gonna you're still gonna you know have your buttons pushed, and you're gonna feel that anger. But then, when you're aware of your feelings and your responses, then you have the option to decide, okay, you know, if I snap and and say what I'm thinking, then that's never going to be forgotten and that's not going to heal for a long time. Or I can just kind of swallow that and, and sit with it and reply in a more, um, um, 
I've lost the word now. Um, skillful means. This comes back to a good example is right speech. Okay? And I know you talked about this last week. Um, and I forget the exact teaching. I told you before that Buddhism is great about endless categorizations and lists, right? They're really useful, but you know you get kind of tired of it after a while. But I heard this one teaching once that I just love. I don't know where it is in the sutras. Before you say something, you should ask yourself four questions. Okay? Is what you're going to say true? Well, if it's not true, you know you certainly should think twice before saying it. But even if it's true, is it timely? You know, you don't want to say, well, you shouldn't have done that yesterday. Because it's not timely. It's not helpful then. You know, okay. And then even if, it, if it's true and it's timely, um, is it helpful? Okay. Because if it's true and it's timely, but it doesn't, doesn't help, you're just making the other person feel bad that they didn't think of it, you know. And then even if it's true and it's timely and it's helpful, is it kind? You know? Um, I guess that's probably like the little white lies category, something, I don't know. But when you, if you ask yourself those four questions sometimes, you find yourself saying a lot less. Okay? And the, the point is with practice, with awareness, you can give yourself the chance may not always take it, may not always do it, but you can give yourself the chance to do something like that before you respond. And I hesitate to give an example because then it's going to make it sound like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm some you know, big enlightened person who's figured this all out, and that's certainly not the case. But once in a while, the practice pays off. So I was on a, a call with my business partner uh, a week or so ago, and he, he had, there's certain buttons of mine that he pushes because we're very, very different. He's very creative. I'm very analytical. So we kind of clash sometimes. And he said something that just really, really irritated me. And I noticed it, and I didn't respond for about five minutes. And then five minutes later, I responded, but calmly, and said, Chris, you know, it really irritates me when this, and then we discussed it instead of saying, damn it, you know, I told you not to. That's not the way to respond. But you can say, this irritates me, but you do it with a calm tone of voice, and you figure out how to respond in a, in a helpful way. Um, I probably shouldn't have used his name on the recording. <laughs> but he knows it, and I, I drive him nuts too. Um, so that's what the practice does. It, it gives you that slight hesitation to kind of watch yourself in action and take more control over it instead of being whipsawed by your preconditioning by all the voices in your head of your your parents and your grandparents and your siblings and your friends and your teachers and and people like me or whatever telling you you know you should do this you should do that so that you can stop back and think for yourself to how do I want to respond to this and based on my ethics, my observations, my understanding from whatever spiritual practice or, or tradition, how do I want to respond? So that was a long answer, but did that help? Okay. Good question.
you all think of the tea? Is it banana? Yeah. Banana, thumbs up or thumbs down. 